Thank you, Pam. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. I don't know how long into my studies it was before I realized that I was preaching on hell on Sunday morning and heaven on Sunday night. I'd like to say that I planned it that way, but that was not the case. Tonight I want to bring you a message entitled Heaven's Gate. Perhaps you remember from a few years back the cult called Heaven's Gate. That was the group that on March the 26, 1997, 39 members of that group committed suicide in order to reach an alien spacecraft which they believed was following in the trail of the Hale-Bopp comet. Obviously just one more sad, misguided attempt to find a way to heaven anyway, except God's way. Down through the ages, man has offered many opinions of how one gets to heaven. Some have maintained that heaven is reached through a life of good works. If at the end of your life, your good works exceed your bad works, you make it. Others have maintained it's through some ritual, such as baptism. Of course, that's baptism into the right church. But the Word of God maintains that there is only one gate to heaven, only one ladder to heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In tonight's text, we're going to read of Jacob and his very famous and often interpreted and misinterpreted dream. His dream of a ladder or a stairway to heaven. Jesus, in fact, referred to this story in the New Testament as an illustration of his own place as the one and only way to heaven. Now let me set the stage. Ostensibly, Jacob is set out to obtain a wife from among his mother's people. But in reality, it is more to flee from the wrath of his brother Esau, who is furious over being cheated out of the blessing. It is curious, I think, to observe that this seems to be a little bit late in life to be worrying about being married for the first time. Jacob's 77 years old at this point. In fact, he's going to be 84 years old when he finally marries because Laban deceives him and cheats him into working seven years for his wife. This evening, I want you to notice with me three things about Jacob. First of all, we're going to look at Jacob fleeing. Verses 10 and 11. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, the plot to deceive his father into giving him the blessing intended for his brother Esau was a success. But at what a price. Jacob was forced to flee 
from his home to escape from being killed by his brother. Jacob gets the blessing, but stop to consider for a moment, he left behind all the inheritance with his brother. Jacob's journey in search of a wife is very much different than that of his grandfather's servant when he went to find a a wife for Isaac. Jacob is alone. He didn't have any armed servants to protect him. Jacob at this point is probably as lonely as he has ever been in his life. It may be that the only time he has ever been by himself in his life. Now it's been two or three days since Jacob left his home in quite a bit of a hurry. Two or three days journey of a 500 mile journey from Beersheba to Haran. But hopefully far enough away that Esau couldn't catch up with him. Now on the evening of the second day, just before nightfall, Jacob stops for the night. We soon learn that it's on the outskirts of the city of Luz. Jacob is so filled with fear, probably for a good reason. This is a profoundly pagan city. He is so filled with fear that he doesn't even enter the city, even though night has fallen. It's a dark time and a hard place. He can't go back. Esau would kill him. He can't stay where he is. And he wonders what's going to happen to him if he goes on. Most of us can identify with feeling like that at some point in our lives. Can't go back. Afraid to go forward. Don't really know what to do. Not only was Jacob fleeing, but secondly, I want you to see that Jacob dreaming. Verse 12. And then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God was ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Jacob lies down to sleep, and while he slept, he dreamed. Probably one of the most famous dreams in history. This was a unique dream in that Jacob knew that it was God who was communicating with him. As far as I know, this is the first time that God has ever spoken to Jacob. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I dream, when I wake up, I wake up shaking my head. Wondering where my brain gets all this weird stuff that I come up with. But this was not a typical dream. This was a message from God. Now notice with me what Jacob saw. This dream is recorded, like we said, in beginning in verse 12. The ladder was set up on earth, and its top reached to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. In his dream, Jacob saw a stairway. There's a particular Hebrew word used here, and it's used only one time in the Bible. It can mean ladder. That's the way it's translated in the King James Version and the New King James Version. 
but it also can mean, and more typically means, stairway. On the stairway, Jacob saw angels going up and angels coming down the stairs. So we have to ask ourselves, what are these angels doing? Angels going up, or typical of, or symbolic of, the angels taking the needs and the request of the people of God to the Father. Angels coming down, or symbolic, or typical of, the angels bringing God's answers and his provisions back down to his people. This, of course, was not a literal staircase to heaven on which the angels literally ascended and descended, but it was symbolic of a spiritual reality. But there were more than just the angels. <clears throat> the first part of verse 13 says, And behold, the Lord stood above it. This is a particularly strong phrase in the original language suggesting that it was made with uplifted arms and one with one mouth standing open in which they said there a ladder. Oh angels and look the Lord himself. That's what Jacob saw, and now look what Jacob heard. And the Lord said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and north and south, and in you and in your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. God reaffirms the promise that he, had, he made to Abraham, his grandfather, and to Isaac, his father. I will give you the land, verse 13. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, verse 14. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, verse 14. I will watch over you wherever you go, verse 15. I will bring you back to this land, verse 15. And I will, get, I will not leave you, verse 15. Jacob receives very clear and specific reassurance that the covenant that was given to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac was to be continued in him. In verse 15, the Lord addresses Jacob's immediate concerns, and he gave Jacob a fourfold reassurance. Each one of those assurances corresponded to a great need in the life of Jacob at that particular moment. There, first of all, was the assurance of a divine presence. I am with you. This, of course, spoke to Jacob's anxious sense of being desperately and hopelessly alone. He may be miles from any of his family, but God is with him. And God's word is still the same for us today. Hebrews 13:5 says, God will never leave us nor forsake us. Of course, this protection does not mean <clears throat> that we will escape the storms of life, but that his presence will be with us to give us peace and assurance 
in uncertain times. The assurance of divine presence. Secondly, an assurance of divine protection. And I will keep you wherever you go. God's promise of protection is not a promise that nothing will ever touch our lives. That our lives will be free from pain and heartache. But it does mean that nothing will ever touch our lives that does not first pass through the hands of God. Whatever does come into our lives is for our good and will ultimately accomplish his plan for our life. The third thing is the assurance of divine preservation. And I will bring you back to this land. This spoke, no doubt, to Jacob's acute awareness that he has quite literally left every material possession behind. He was perhaps for the first time in his life impoverished. And he didn't know that he would ever again have the material blessings that he had had previously. The assurance finally of, divine, of a divine promise. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. It can be stated that Jacob has fled not only in fear, but in in some sense the word, he has fled in disgrace. Yet God gives him the assurance that he's not through with him yet. He will not be cast aside because of his past failure. God is always able to begin with us where we are and use us as channels of blessing to others. The principle is true not only for Jacob, but it is true for us as believers today. When we are facing hard or uncertain times, we have a choice. We can pace up and down and worry, or we can open up God's Word and we can allow God's Spirit to remind us of God's promises. We can fret or we can focus on the promises of God. The choice is ours. God tells Jacob that he will be with him until he fulfills all his promises to him. And God still gives us that assurance today. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The third thing we see is Jacob <clears throat> worshiping. Jacob worshiping. And there are three parts of his worship. First of all, there's Jacob's discovery. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So Suddenly, Jacob awakens with a start, and he begins to put the pieces together in his mind. And what Jacob discovered is that God is everywhere. It was a common pagan belief in the day in which Jacob lived that gods were geographical. Your God might govern one location... But if you leave that location and go to another location, another god might be in control there. Now, on some level, Jacob knew that Jehovah was not limited to one area. 
But perhaps in some sense, Jacob feared that he had literally left behind the presence and protection of God Almighty. So God reminded Jacob that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 139 and verses 7 through 9, Where can I go from your spirit? Oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The message of the dream is this. Jacob, I'm nearer to you than you have ever considered. Although I'm in heaven and you're on earth, there's a stairway that reaches from me to you, and my angels are constantly watching over you. I'm really not very far away. In fact, I'm with you wherever you go. I was with you at home, but I am also with you tonight, and I will be with you in Haran. Everywhere you go, I'll be with you. And that, in a nutshell, is what this dream is about. It is a message about the nearness of God. You know, years of ministry experience have convinced me that on the whole, now listen to me, on the whole, relatively few people meet God on Sunday morning. You are much more likely... To meet God when you're really sick, or when you lose your job, or when your friends betray you, or when your marriage collapses. You're much more likely to meet Him after an accident than you are while you're fellowshipping in the foyer after the Sunday morning service. You're much more likely to meet Him in the hospital than you are in the sanctuary. But that's not because God is not here, He is. And not just on Sunday either. Our problem is that God is speaking, but we are not listening. It often takes something to get our attention. Sometimes it takes a tragedy. Sometimes it takes failure, financial setback. It takes heartache. It takes illness. It takes the collapse of our dreams in order to make us willing to look up into heaven and say, Surely... The Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Jacob, up to this point, didn't seem to have much of a personal relationship with God. He didn't have much of a relationship with God that was not mediated to him through his mother and his father. In Genesis chapter 27, in verse 20, When he was talking to his father, he called the Lord your God. Now, perhaps for the first time, he realizes that God is his personal God. And he begins to see everything differently. He begins to understand that God is better than any human friend. He will not leave us like some friends do. He will never be too busy to listen to us. He will never bring up the past if we confess it. He will always know what to do in any circumstance. His guidance will always be appropriate. And he will continue to love you even when you do not act the way he wants you to. 
The second thing about his worship we see is Jacob's decision. Verse 17. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it upon a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Luz previously. Jacob is afraid or literally in awe of what he has witnessed. This is a different place than where he went to sleep because he sees it in a different light. This is the last place that perhaps Jacob expected to see God, but that is exactly where God appeared. He was awestruck, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. The phrase, the house of God, is Bethel in Hebrew. Beth means house, El, God. Bethel, they're in the house of God. Notice then Jacob's declaration in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. So I shall come back to my father's house in peace, and then the Lord shall be my God. And this house shall, which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. Well, the three parts of his declaration, three parts of his vow, if you would. First of all, Jacob vowed to serve God. Now, there is some division here in thought about what Jacob actually said. The the commentators seem to be almost equally divided between those who believe that what what Jacob is making here is a conditional clause. Because you'll notice it says, if, if, if. Okay, God, if you deliver on what you promise, I will serve you. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, we can't understand if to be translated since. And what Jacob is saying is, in light of the fact that you are going to be with me, since you are going to be with me, and since you are going to provide for me, I will give you my life. We could spend a lot of time debating, but I don't really know that it matters. Jacob understood that his blessing was more than he deserved. That the blessing that he was receiving was staggering in scope. And that the love he was receiving could never adequately be repaid. Jacob vowed to serve God. Secondly, Jacob vowed to remember his experience. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. Jacob took the stone which he served, which had served as his pillow, and set it aside to God in commemoration of all that he had experienced that night. This place is going to be forever sacred to him as the place where he first met God. He wanted to remember that place. 
just as I'm sure that you want to remember the place you were saved. It was a special and sacred place for you. And third and finally, Jacob vowed a tithe. And all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob vowed to give God one-tenth of his wealth. The tenth or the tithe as a practice had not yet been instituted. But the pattern had certainly been put in place. The pattern existed in Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 20. Since there is no command at this point to tithe, it was a voluntary act on Jacob's behalf. Now exactly how and to whom he's going to give that tithe, we're not told. Now let me bring this to a conclusion. I alluded to this in the introduction. In the New Testament, <clears throat> Jacob's ladder, our stairway, is revealed not to be a what, but to be a who. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 50 and 51, Jesus responds to Nathanael's faith by saying in verse 50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. We know by reading the New Testament that Nathaniel was a devout man. A man who was serious about his relationship with God. I have to wonder back in the little corner of my mind that perhaps Nathaniel was reading the Old Testament story of Jacob when Jesus came to talk to him. Maybe Nathaniel was even pondering how that gulf between God and man was ever going to be bridged. Whatever he was doing or thinking, Jesus used the story of Jacob to illustrate the truth that he was the latter, the stairway to heaven. As John 14, 6 clearly declares, Jesus is the way to heaven. Without him, there is no other way. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for reminding us that Jesus is the way. Help us, Lord, to stand firm in a society that has a great difficulty believing that there is only one way to heaven. There must surely be many ways that all sincere people must be on their way to heaven when, in fact, your word tells us that's not true, that there is but one way to heaven, one mediator between you and man. There is but one person who has paid the penalty of sin, and that person is your son. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we live in times where it's difficult to know the truth because the truth is so often questioned. Help us to find our truth in your word. 
and be willing to stand on that truth, popular or unpopular. Father, I pray that you would encourage your children tonight. Whatever these who are gathered here need, I pray you'd meet those needs tonight as you alone can. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.